In every American community, you have varying shades of political opinion. One of the shadiest of these is the liberals. Welcome to Discord and Rhyme, a podcast where we discuss our favorite albums song by song. I'm Ben Marlin. I'm John McFerrin. And I'm Phil Maddox. And I'm Amanda Rogers. And now it's time to turn it over to this week's host, John. What album do you have for us, John? And why did you pick it? So this week, we will be discussing Phil Oaks in Concert from 1966. So one of my favorite things about getting to contribute episodes to Discord and Rhyme is that it gives me an opportunity to talk about albums that mean a lot to me personally, but that for one reason or another have largely fallen between the cracks of history and never get brought up as often as I wish they did. While I have never had much interest in becoming an expert in the 1960s Greenwich Village folk scene, which boasted Phil Oakes as one of its standout figures, In Concert has entertained me, stimulated my mind, and wrenched my heart for almost 20 years. Phil Oakes had a complicated career and a complicated life, which I will allude to at various points in the episode, but in concert captures him at his best. And I am thrilled that I get to talk about it here. That's great. So what is your personal history with Phil Oakes and his music? I became familiar with Phil Oakes because of Bob Dylan, but not for any reasons one might typically assume. Back in 2004, somebody found my written thoughts about Bob Dylan, who I loved in college and probably love even more now, and this person basically told me that I was a fool to have allowed myself to get conned by an insincere sellout like Dylan. Yeah. (laughs) Was your friend Joni Mitchell? It might have been. I didn't check. It's 2004, man. The war is over. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) As part of their diatribe, they told me that nothing in Dylan's catalog could stack up to two albums by Phil Oakes, whose name I had never heard at that point. The albums mentioned were a live album, In Concert of 1966, and a studio album, Pleasures of the Harbor of 1967. Annoyed, but intrigued, (laughs) I decided to investigate Oakes and I bought a copy of the studio album from iTunes. I thought it was fine, and I actually quite enjoy that album now. But looking back at it, getting introduced to Phil Oakes through a psychedelic Baroque pop Dixieland jazz album was about as bad of an introduction as I could have had to him, short of his Elvis Presley pastiches on the deceptively named greatest hits of 1970. Fast forward about six months. I went to stay with my brother in California for a few days, and while I was out there, we decided to hit up Amoeba Music in Hollywood. While wandering around the store, looking at everything but not looking for anything in particular, I saw the words In Concert and Phil Oaks staring back at me, and I decided that I needed to grab it. 
I don't remember everything that I bought at Amoeba on that trip, but I do remember that when I got back to my apartment in Chicago, In Concert was a clear standout of my haul. And I've had a deep love and fondness for the album ever since. I haven't bothered to get much more into Phil Oaks until recently, and only in recent months have I learned more of the tragic details of his later years beyond a vague sketch. But he's become a figure that I find extremely interesting. And in concert, regardless of how much of it may or may not actually be live, is easily my favorite thing he ever did. Phil, uh, do you have a history with Phil Oaks? Not much of one. He's a name that I've seen kicked around a bunch of times, but I'd never really listened to him or thought much about him. And then John said he wanted to do this ep- this album for an episode. And I said, yeah, sure. That is basically the entirety of my history with Phil Oaks. <laughs> okay. Amanda, how about you? Well, I am mostly just here tonight to play the clips and occasionally say mean things about Bob Dylan. <laughs> but I, I will share my Phil Oaks origin story. Um, and Ben, you're going to like this. I first learned about him from Stephen King. Wow. In a, wow. In a book called Hearts in Atlantis. And yes. that is a collection of four loosely connected novellas. And in the title story, which is the best one, despite what Ben might tell you, <coughs> um, Phil Oaks's song, I Ain't Marching Anymore, is a medium-sized plot point. Hmm. Um, I'm not going to go into detail because you guys aren't here for that. Just go read it if you're interested. It's really, really good. And it made me want to hear the song. So I acquired it in a manner that I'm certain was perfectly legal because I would never do otherwise. Mm -hmm. And I loved it immediately. And at that same time, I acquired a recording of the Universal Soldier that the Internet told me was Phil Oaks, but which I learned years later was actually Donovan. (laughs) Um, So this episode has really been the kick in the pants I needed to hear more songs that are really by Phil Oaks. And what do you know? He's excellent. I'm just surprised to hear that there was a Stephen King musical reference that wasn't Blue Oyster Cult. Shocking, isn't it? (laughs) Hearts in Atlantis is an amazing book. Even if certain people are wrong about what the best story in it are, is something like that. <laughs> We've been having this argument since like 2003. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. So I discovered Phil Oaks back in high school or college, probably thanks to Wilson and Allroy's record reviews. Mm. I am, and you knew I was going to say this, predictable. <laughs> As we record this, I'm in my early 40s and I'm still pretty liberal politically. But back in college, I was really, really liberal and I was in love with the 1960s counterculture and especially the music associated with it. I was fascinated by anyone who had an attitude and who sang about sticking it to the man, as I absolutely wanted to do at the time and still plan on doing one of these years. (laughs) As soon as work quiets down and the dishes get washed, then the man better watch out because I'm coming for him. (laughs) So, of course, Phil Oaks was a perfect fit for me back then. I found a CD compilation called There But For Fortune, which contained almost this whole album, plus a few tracks from each of his first two albums. I was entranced by it, by his music, his attitude, his politics, his incisiveness, his righteousness, and his humor. I wish I could say I've explored more of his music since then, and I still want to, but the core of what I heard back then is still so meaningful to me, so... This is a great choice. I'm glad we're talking about it today. John, can you give us a history of Phil Oaks?
Oh, I marched to the Battle of New Orleans at the end of the early British wars. The young land started growing, the young blood started flowing, but I ain't a marching anymore. Phil Oaks was born in December 1940 in El Paso, Texas, to Jacob Oaks and Gertrude Oaks. During World War II, Jacob, or Jack, was drafted into the Army and served as a military doctor in the European theater. And his experiences treating soldiers in the Battle of the Bulge and elsewhere affected his mental health for the rest of his life, which did not go unnoticed by Phil or by his siblings, Sonia and Michael. As a teenager in Columbus, Ohio, where the Oaks family settled after moving several times, Phil showed musical talent as a clarinetist, and he became the principal soloist in the orchestra of the Capital University Conservatory of Music before he turned 16. As with many teenagers in the 1950s, however, Phil's cultural and artistic interests turned in two main directions. First, towards what he heard on the radio, especially the early rock music of Elvis Presley and Buddy Holly, and second, towards what he saw in the theaters, in movies that starred figures like John Wayne. In 1958, after spending his last two years of high school at a military academy in Virginia, he enrolled at The Ohio State University, but he quickly burned out and bolted for Miami, Florida, where he experienced a moment of clarity after getting jailed for two weeks for sleeping on a park bench. In 1959, he returned to Ohio State as a journalism major who wanted to focus on politics. And there he met Jim Glover, a fellow student who taught Oaks to play guitar and who introduced Oaks both to folk singers like Pete Seeger and Woody Guthrie and to socialism. When Oaks found his politics were becoming too radical for the school newspaper to publish, he turned his interest to songwriting, and he spent much of the summer of 1961 performing at a folk club in Cleveland called Farragher's Back Room. When Oaks failed to become the editor-in-chief of the Ohio State College newspaper, he dropped out in his last quarter without graduating, and he moved to New York City in 1962 to turn his full-time attention to writing and performing folk songs. After arriving in New York City, Oakes found a niche in the burgeoning Greenwich Village folk scene, where, among other things, he established a complicated friendship with Bob Dylan. Complicated here, meaning that Oakes always admired Dylan, even when he criticized him, while Dylan was sometimes friendly, but often kind of a jackass towards Oakes. <laughs> Dylan is a jackass. Sure. <laughs> Oakes described himself as a quote-unquote scening journalist, a term that would be used at various points in his career both to praise and to condemn him. And he once said that his primary inspiration for material came from reading Newsweek. He performed at the Newport Folk Festival in 1963 and 1964, and during this time, he also signed a contract with Elektra Records, releasing two studio albums, All the News That's Fit to Sing of 1964, which I think is pretty good, and I Ain't Marching Anymore of 1965, which I think borders on excellent. His third album, Phil Oaks in Concert, 
which we will discuss today, is technically filed as a live album, but significant chunks of it were recorded in studio due to flaws in the intended source concerts in Boston and New York City. This album marked the last time Phil would record with just him and an acoustic guitar. And while he would expand his musical palette considerably in future albums, In Concert captures him at the peak of his powers as a songwriter and as a force for societal change, even if he never quite changed the world as much as he believed he could have. Before we get started on Phil Oaks in Concert, we'd like to say thank you to our newest Patreon subscribers, Arn and two guys named Ryan, especially Ryan, but no disrespect intended towards Ryan. (laughs) Thanks to all of you who were already there. We get to provide Discord and Rhyme ad-free thanks to all of our awesome supporters on Patreon. Go check out patreon.com forward slash discord pod and see the perks we have for you in return, including exclusive bonus episodes. Right now, you can actually hear my solo podcast, Detours, which is truly excellent if I do say so myself. Also, we have just opened a merch store. Go to tpublic.com. That's T-E-E-P-U-B-L-I-C.com forward slash user forward slash discord pod, or just search for discord pod and you'll find us. There are shirts, hats, mugs, face masks, hockey sticks, baseball bats, pretty much anything you want with our awesome logo or some other cool designs you can choose from. And if you just want to say hi, hit us up on Twitter at discord pod or email discordpod at gmail.com. We love you all and really enjoy hearing from you. Is that real? Yeah, most of the time. Okay, okay. Just wanted to verify. Now, on with the show. We're going to start with track one of Phil Oaks in Concert. It's called I'm Going to Say It Now. Oh, I am just a student, sir, and only want to learn. But it's hard to read through the rising smoke from the books that you like to burn. So I'd like to make a promise and I'd like to make a vow That when I've got something to say, sir, I'm gonna say it now Oh, you've given me a number and you've taken off my name To get around this campus, why you almost need a play And you're supporting Chiang Kai-shek while I'm supporting Mao So when I've got something to say, sir, I'm gonna say it now In Concert begins with a peppy, catchy, straightforward protest song. And I have weirdly mixed feelings about this. Mm -hmm. As an individual song, I think it's delightful. It's the declaration of a young college-age freethinker that he's going to make up his own mind about the nature of the world despite the efforts of the academic establishment to act as his parents and tell him what's best. Furthermore, the lyrics contain a good mix of timeless sentiments and more contemporary geopolitical references. Like the mention of how the establishment would lean towards supporting Chiang Kai-shek, the leader of the Republic of China, which lost the 1948 Chinese Civil War and settled in Taiwan, while the rising generation of socialist-minded students might have sympathies towards Mao Zedong, the leader of the People's Republic of China. And yet, while it may seem weird for me to criticize a mid-60s protest album for opening with a quintessential mid-60s protest song, I kind of feel inclined to do so, because this track feels almost 
off-puttingly lightweight to me in the context of the rest of the album. In Concert, at its best, runs the emotional gamut from deeply critical and irreverent towards both the establishment and the typical consumer of protest music, on the one hand, to deeply contemplative of fate and the human condition, on the other hand. I'm going to say it now, in the context of an album that I truly love, is just a protest song. It's a good one on its own merits, but it's far from one of my favorites on the album. Wow, John, I'm, I'm surprised there, but I, I like your perspective. Phil, what do you think of the, the opening track? So it was basically my introduction to Phil Oaks because I really didn't know his music at all before digging into this album. And, uh, well, it's some 60s, you know, acoustic protest music. Yep. Hmm. I would call it uh, Country Joe and the Fishy. <laughs> yeah. When they were trying to do more acoustic-y, like, protest songs and less bizarre psychedelic freakouts that are the most dated things in the world. But yeah, I heard this and I'm like, well, this is decent as what it is. But, uh, you know, mid 60s, like, you know, protest songs are never really going to light my world on fire these days. Or I guess, you know, they can, but they have to be, you know, more substantial than this one, which is okay. I'm surprised, uh, but but I, I love this one. I, 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 I'm going to keep coming back to this, but I'm always in awe of the economy of, of Oaks's lyrics. Sure. He makes every word here count. Each verse is a different jab in his overall attack. I watched a movie about boxing last night, so that was the <laughs> metaphor that I was going with. Um, the song's melody, I mean, it is straight folk. It's not Brian Wilson complex, but it's memorable. It's just what it needs to be. I like the little bit where he adds sir to every chorus because he wants to get this administrator's attention and he knows the administrator is only going to respond to obsequiousness. Mm -hmm. But then the sir is mm -hmm. just Oaks's foot in the door. Because once he's in, there's nothing respectful about his message. He's holding the floor yeah. and he belittles the administrator. He's contemptuous of the administrator and he's even a little threatening. I like that. Uh, I will say choosing Mao Woof. I mean, that, that is <laughs> yeah. just the wrong yeah. choice. I don't know if it was obvious back, in the back wrong then. wrong horse. But, yeah. I don't think it was. Neither of those two choices are particularly good. Yeah. But anyway, I love this one. It, it is for every kid who slowly starts to suspect that those adults he's been brought up to obey are actually full of shit. Uh, <laughs> of course, it's not until you become one of those adults that you absolutely know it for sure. Amanda, what do you think of this one? I'm with you, Ben. I Good. think this is great. I I really like what you had to say about Phil Oaks's economy. Um, he's very, just very concise. And I he is being quite insulting of this adult's point of view while still being sure to pointedly call him sir from time to time. And... Even though the specific references are very much of their time, this is still a very typical college kid attitude. You know, I mean, we've all been there. I was a snotty liberal college <laughs> kid, too. And this is <laughs> this is what you do. You know, you're out on your own and you're learning different perspectives and you feel like you know everything and you're way smarter than all those dumb adults. <laughs> and even like. I knew a couple of kids in college who used to wear little Chairman Mao hats around and Ooh. carry the little red book. And 
it was a bad choice. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, and, but the thing is, like we were saying in the 60s, it, what, that wasn't as clear as it was now. And there was also very limited, inf- you know, accurate information coming out of China. Yeah. So it's a, you know, it's, it's, it's an understandable reference that he's making there, even though we know now that, I don't know, Mao's a bad dude, okay? Yeah. So... Yeah, I just, I think this is a good opener. It's got certainly one of the catchier melodies on the album. And it's it's just, it's one of the most, well, it's probably the second most memorable song on the album to me. We'll talk about the the most memorable one later on. I think this is a great opener. It's a great way to introduce what ends up being a pretty heavy listen. Yeah. And I think that, I think it's just that I like the heaviness of the listen. Because mm-hmm. I really like the song as a standalone, but I feel like I would like it more on a compilation or even on the previous album. Mm-hmm. That's fair. That's fair. But I feel like, like hitting you right in the head with, you know, right off the bat with the the heavier material later on that's fair. would be kind of off-putting, especially in a live setting. Sure. See, the one thing, like I read that sir as dripping with like the maximum amount of contempt. Yeah. Oh, yeah. for sure. Like, you know, it, it strikes me as like, you know, when Elon Musk posts something, hey, 69 guys, am I right on Twitter? And some like <laughs> weird left Twitter guy responds like, excellent meme, sir, to him. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I tell you, like, I think Phil Oaks were he around today. He could he tear mm. it up on weird left Twitter. <laughs> oh, I would read that all day. <laughs> all right. Uh, so let's drop the anvil of Bracero track two on the listeners. One may think of Phil Oaks's personal politics and the messages he chose to convey in his music. There's no denying that Phil Oaks had an intense belief and conviction concerning the causes he promoted that wasn't necessarily shared by every other musician and listener in and around the Greenwich Village scene. Oaks never thought it enough to limit his focus to those causes that white middle-class liberals might concern themselves with, whether because it affected them directly or because they could easily learn about it on the evening news. Oakes cared about problems far away from the mainstream spotlight, problems without easy solutions that could be implemented without affecting people like him. Bracero focuses on Mexican manual laborers who came to the United States through a series of programs stemming from diplomatic agreements between the United States and Mexico from 1942 to 1964. The United States would recruit workers from Mexico. These workers would come to places such as California to work the fields. And as often as not, these workers would experience horrendous working and living conditions as they earned money to send back home. 
The thorny issues of immigration, the interaction of migrant workers and native workers, the effects of migrant workers on overall employment and wages, are difficult ones that I have no interest in trying to sort through in the context of this podcast. In the context of this album, though, and especially in the context of the New England audiences for whom this was ostensibly performed, I'm struck by Oakes's brazenness in delivering this message to an audience more conditioned to softer, less pointed sentiments that tended to focus on more accessible topics. Then as now, so much of the middle-class comfort that people of their ilk would enjoy rested on the tired backs of figures like those described in this song. And Oakes forces his audience to consider a cost that his audience would just as soon ignore. When I hear lines like, quote, and the sun will bite your body as the dust will dry you thirsty while your muscles beg for mercy, brasero, in the shade of your sombrero, drop your sweat upon the soil like the fruit your youth can spoil, brasero, end quote. I can't help but hear in Oakes's words the same force and conviction deployed by Charles Dickens when, in A Christmas Carol, he forces Scrooge and the reader to view the decrepit, pathetic forms of ignorance and want, children clinging to the ghost of Christmas present under his robes. Welcome to California, where the friendly farmers will take care of you, indeed. For me, this Spanish-tinged ball of uncomfortable tension is where the album really begins. Amanda, what do you think of Bracero? It's really good. And there is so much history to dig into there because there were so many really significant events. Like, for example, Cesar Chavez, you know, started unionizing in response to the Braceros. And there's, it, I mean, it's just a major part of American history. And the the plight of the migrant workers was, it, it had been written about before, most notably, I think, by Woody Guthrie in the 40s. Um, his song, Pastures of Plenty, makes pretty much the same point. Uh, but my personal favorite is Deportee. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And that's been recorded, you know, a hundred million billion times. But the one that I like the best is by Arlo Guthrie and Hoyt Axton. I'm going to play a little bit of it here. My father's own father, he waded that river. They took all the money he made in his life. My brothers and sisters, they worked in your orchards, rode the big trucks till they lay down and died. Goodbye to my one, goodbye Rosalita, adios mis amigos, Jesus Maria. You won't have a name when you ride the big airplane, all they will call you. The thing about Bracero is, well, for one thing, he keeps pronounce he keeps saying Brucero, yeah. which <laughs> bothers me. <laughs> it's it's a re it's a gorgeous and wonderfully written song, but as a listening experience, it's very dreary, mm -hmm. which is I'm sure deliberate because mm -hmm. you know he's describing really unpleasant 
very, very hard work. And honestly, listening to the song is kind of hard emotional work. Yes. And I think it's a really excellent achievement artistically, you know, as a way of conveying his point. I think it's great. It's not an especially pleasant listen, but it's not intended to be. Yeah. I mean, you could argue that it's intentionally kind of dreary and and hard to listen to, but there's there's also the danger of being self-serious when you're taking on a topic like this. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I, I like this one. It is heavy. And it is a little hard to listen to, but um, it even though it's about migrant workers, it also makes me think of John Steinbeck's novel, The Grapes of Wrath. Yeah, uh, yeah. which is one of my favorites. Uh, it's about you know uh, Okies who came out to California in the 1930s uh, because of the Dust Bowl, and they were basically immediately trapped and almost enslaved on these big farms out in California, working mm-hmm. all day for almost nothing technically free to go, but with security guards watching their every move and really only making money that they can spend in the company store. Mm-hmm. Uh, so just just totally under these farmers' control. I like how Oaks can be simultaneously cutting and sarcastic towards oppressors, but also deeply empathetic towards the oppressed in the same yeah. song yep. um, and almost at the same time. Americans, even ones with the best intentions, can be scarily good at not noticing the poor immigrants who pick our food, clean our houses and office buildings, and work dangerous, shitty, soul-deadening jobs at Purdue Chicken and wherever else. I'm glad Phil Oaks was paying attention to them even a little bit. Yeah. Phil, what do you make of this one? Oh, yeah. It's another. It's a very good song. Like you know, Amanda mentioned, it's pretty heavy and... A thing with this album, which I don't know if you want to call it a flaw or not, because it is what it is, is that there's zero instrumental variety or virtuosity on it. Yeah. 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 Every song is just Phil Oakes's pretty basic guitar technique and his mm-hmm. words. So that's what you're getting yeah. the whole way. Hmm. And on a song yeah. like this, like, it's good and bad. It's good because it really does, like drive the heaviness of it home but it also you know it can be a bit much because there's nothing to distract you from what he's doing yeah Yeah. for sure this song is also a good example of like you know i think a lot of people in this folk scene were very much posers yes Uh, phil oaks was a true believer yep like for sure like he really cared about this stuff let's go on to the next track ringing of revolution in a building of gold with riches untold Live the families in which the country was founded And the merchants of style with their vain velvet smiles were there For they also were hounded And the soft middle class crowded into the last For the buildings fully surrounded and the noise outside was the ringing of revolution. One of Oakes's most striking features as a protest songwriter is that he went beyond stereotypically bland, up with people, down with the man messages, and actually took a distinct philosophical point of view. Oakes introduces Ringing of Revolution as a song about all revolutions the French and American and beyond. 
But the generic revolution he describes here is framed in Marxist terms, as centering primarily on economic class divisions. The song that unfolds is gentle and anthemic, with a feel that reminds me much more of Dylan's A Hard Rain's Are Gonna Fall than any of Dylan's more overtly protest-themed songs. I've been 10,000 miles in the mouth of a graveyard And it's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard rain You're gonna fall Oh, what did you see, my blue-eyed son? But the images Oakes paints under this soothing facade are shockingly aggressive. Quote, With compromise sway, we gave in halfway when we saw that rebellion was growing. Now everything's lost as they kneel by the cross where the blood of Christ is still flowing. Too late for their sorrow, they've reached their tomorrow and reaped the seed they were sowing, now harvested by the reigning of revolution." End quote. Or take the final verse, quote, Down on our knees, we're begging you please. We're sorry for the way you were driven. There's no need to taunt, just take what you want, and we'll make amends if we're living. But away from the ground, the flames told the town, that only the dead are forgiven as they vanished inside the ringing of revolution, end quote. Phil Oakes had no chance of becoming anything more than a cult artist with those kinds of lyrics. Hmm. But there's a deep power and sincerity to his words here that I personally find extremely appealing. And I consider this one of his classics. Now, before we move on, I have to include the full-spoken introduction to this song. In Concert has some absolutely fascinating spoken introductions, and while by no means will I include most of them in their entirety, there is one particular bit of trivia contained within this introduction that I feel compelled to point out. We'll do a song then about revolution, song of what's been true of all revolutions from the beginning, the French, the American... This is a fictional song, a cinematic song. You've got a picture, this mansion on the top of a hill housing the last of the idle rich, the last of the bourgeois, the last of the folk singers, as, as they're being encircled tighter and tighter by the ringing of revolution. All the people on the inside spiritually resemble Charles Lawton. And all the people on the outside physically resemble Lee Marvin. As a matter of fact, the song is so cinematic that it's been made into a movie directed by Otto Preminger. It stars Senator Carl Hayden as Ho Chi Minh. <laughs> Frank Sinatra plays Fidel Castro. Ronald Reagan plays George Murphy. <laughs> John Wayne plays Lyndon Johnson. And Lyndon Johnson plays God. I play Bobby Dillon. 
The young Bobby Dillon. Ronald Reagan, the formerly Democratic actor and head of the Screen Actors Guild, who became the governor of California and later the 40th president of the United States as a Republican, would eventually become one of the most commonly referenced political figures in the world of rock music. Phil Oakes's spoken introduction to Reigning of Revolution, in which he mispronounces his name, <laughs> is among the very first ever references in popular music to Ronald Reagan. Wow. Phil, what do you think of Ringing of Revolution? It, th- those lyrics are something. Yep. I am somewhat surprised that this record label was actually willing to put it out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. People talk about these days, like, you know, oh, everything is so political. It's like this was on like mm. Electra wasn't like a major record label, but like it was pretty big. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine too many modern record labels being like, hey, let's like I wrote a song about how we're going to kill all like the rich people up to and including the middle class. Yep. <laughs> and the record label's like, yep, sounds good. Anyway, uh, message of the song aside, it's very well constructed. And, you know, Phil Oaks has a great voice and there's clearly real passion in it. I guess the Dylan song this reminded me of is probably Chimes of Freedom. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's Oh, it. yeah. Flashing for the warriors whose strength is not to fight. Flashing for the refugees on the unarmed road of flight and for each and every underdog soldier in the night and we gazed upon the chimes of freedom flashing which has kind of a you know similar you know looking towards like the plight of like the poor and working man vibe to it but dylan I don't know how much he actually cared about that. No, he always kept he it pretty vague. Yeah. Uh, Phil Oaks is not keeping it vague. Mm-mm. He is telling you what needs to be done about it, which is, uh, again, it's just fascinating to hear a song with lyrics this extremely direct. Amanda, how about you? Uh, what I want to point out, I like this song a lot. It has a really, really pretty melody to it. And what always catches my attention is the rhyme scheme. Yeah. It's a very clever rhyme scheme. And I know there is a name for this poetic form, but I can't recall what it is because I'm a pathetic excuse for an English major. (laughs) But it's really, really effective. And none of the rhymes seem forced. No. There's never a point where he was like, okay, what rhymes with driven? Hmm, living. Okay, how can I reverse engineer that <laughs> to make sense? You know, it it all, it flows so well. I mean, he was just such a brilliant lyricist. Oh, and yeah. he picked a form for this song and he stuck to it and he did it super well. I got to keep listening to this song because the dreariness is a little bit of a barrier for me here. As much as I love Oaks, there's times when I respect him more than I'm eager to listen to him. Sure. Um, he sings this one beautifully, but it just never sticks with me when it's on. So I'll keep listening because I, I want to hear what you all hear. I mean, I, I'm I'm kind of with you because the thing is, while I like this, I don't know how often I'm going to be like revisiting this album when we're done with this episode, just because it's a lot. Oh, yeah. 
And it's like, as, as yeah. I've been like listening to this album intently for the last few days, I'm like, this is very good. And I'm pretty sure I'm not going to listen to it again for like five years. I feel like I pick a <laughs> lot of those albums. Yeah. <laughs> it's, I mean, for me, I, I love Phil Oaks. Like he has meant something to me for 20 years or, or embarrassingly more. Uh, so, but, but at the same time, I'm just never like, oh, let me put on a Phil, Phil Oaks album because it's, <laughs> yeah. it's heavy and it's, yeah. it's kind of monochromatic. So that, mm-hmm. that's just a, a weird discrepancy. And um, it absolutely cannot work as background music either because the focus is no. completely on his words. And there's, again, like I said, no instrumental variety or virtuosity or anything. If you're not willing to sit there and just listen to Phil Oaks, you know, preaching at you for 55 minutes, there is no reason to put one of these albums on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. We're going to move on to the next track. Is there anybody here? Is there anybody here who'd like to change his clothes into a uniform? Is there anybody here who thinks they're only serving on a raging star? Is there anybody here with glory in their eyes? Loyal to the end, whose duty is to die. I wanna see him. I wanna wish him luck. I wanna shake his hand. Wanna call his name. Put a medal on the man. Is there anybody here who'd like to wrap the flag around an early grave? Phil Oaks's thoughts regarding soldiers defied easy characterization. Please note here that I most definitely did not say that his thoughts regarding war defied easy characterization. Phil Oakes hated war, and in particular the Vietnam War, with all the subtlety of a Mack truck downshifting on the highway. (laughs) And it wouldn't be much of an exaggeration to say that the intensity with which he pursued his quixotic goal of bringing the war to an end helped accelerate his premature death. Soldiers, however, were a much more complicated matter. As I alluded to during the artist's history section, his father's experiences in World War II severely damaged him until he died in 1963. Jack Oakes suffered from bipolar disorder and depression, and he required hospitalization for the latter. He couldn't establish a successful medical practice despite his best efforts. And he kept moving his family around the United States as he repeatedly bounced from working in one hospital to working in another one. Jack Oakes and Phil Oakes never had an especially close relationship. But while Phil Oakes didn't talk about his father very much, it didn't take much in the way of amateur psychology for those close to him to conclude that Phil's aggressive pacifism stemmed at least in part from seeing the effects of war on his father. On the other hand, while he had deep sympathy for soldiers in terms of what they might experience due to the decisions of greater powers who controlled their fate, he didn't feel inclined to give them an automatic pass either. Two of his most famous songs from I Ain't Marching Anymore, the title track and Draft Dodger Rag, are sympathetic looks at somebody with what he saw as the courage to refuse the call to go off and kill in the name of patriotism, and many of the same sentiments apply here. 
is there anybody here focuses on those who go off to war and might even enjoy it? And Phil's tone here, while not reaching outright condemnation, shows somebody who doesn't really understand the mindset of the willing soldier. Quote, is there anybody here proud of the parade who'd like to give a cheer and show they're not afraid? I'd like to ask him what he's trying to defend. I'd like to ask him what he thinks he's going to win, end quote. Or, in a verse that gets sung at various points, quote, Is there anybody here who thinks that following the orders takes away the blame? Is there anybody here who wouldn't mind a murder by another name? Is there anybody here whose pride is on the line? With the honor of the brave and the courage of the blind, end quote. And finally, there's the chorus, which has a tinge of sarcasm, but which I find tempered with a dose of shrug-shouldered bewilderment. Quote, I want to see him. I want to wish him luck. I want to shake his hand. Going to call his name. Put a medal on the man. Put a medal on the man. End quote. As for the song itself, it's maybe a little less crisp and a little more rambling than the very best material on here but I find that the emotional strength of his words and delivery more than compensate. This one hit me at, at just the right time. I think for a lot of guys in their late teens and early 20s, the idea of being a soldier and going to war, it, it looms pretty heavily in your mind, even if it's not your immediate reality. And it wasn't mine. And at that time, I wasn't facing the draft and I had no plans at all to enlist. That just wasn't my world. But I was still very conscious of all the kids who did enlist and who went off to Afghanistan and Iraq. And I was conscious of all the kids in past generations who'd had less of a choice than me because of their socioeconomic status or because they were drafted or because the cause seemed more pressing and noble than later causes might have might have seemed. I read a ton about Vietnam and World War II, and I injected Band of Brothers directly into my veins. <laughs> And as much as I could, I tried to understand the experiences of the men who went off and fought and died in those wars. And I kept up with the the deaths in Afghanistan and Iraq. And while I didn't know any of those soldiers, I was still just devastated by what happened to them. It was all pretty heavy in my mind, or as heavy as it could be for someone who was not in danger of actually having to experience it. Uh, so that's all just to say that the young male experience of going off to war was very much in my mind when I first heard this song. The song is just a, a masterful pairing of condemnation and empathy. Yeah, Oakes thinks that signing up to go to war is a folly, even a murderous folly. But I think there's a level where he understands why young people get swept up in the patriotism and, and pomp and feeling of duty and they go do it anyway. Yeah. Or at the very least, he feels sympathy for what they end up going through. And I think he knows that the best he can do for a lot of young people is just give them something to think about as they go off. Maybe they'll see things a little differently while they're over there. There's not a wasted syllable here. And the lovely melody just delivers those lyrics perfectly. And it, this one just breaks my heart. Mm -hmm. Amanda, what do you make of it? It's excellent. The the sort of dissonance between the military as a concept and warfare as a concept and soldiers as individual humans is 
uh, that's a very complicated topic. And there is a lot of digging that one can do into trying to reconcile those concepts. And I think that, you know, with his typical economy of phrasing here, Phil Oaks does a really, he asks some really interesting and important questions. And there are other pieces of media that have spent a lot more time not really reaching the point <laughs> that that he's making. Like, uh, oh, what's that line? Is there anybody who thinks that following the orders takes away the blame? Like the movie A Few Good Men spends, what, like two and a half hours? Yeah. Addressing that exact question. And you get an answer, but it's not, it's still not as satisfying as this two minute song. This also hits me in a pretty emotional spot because both my family and my husband's are just littered with soldiers. We've had, there there have been members of our family in every major conflict the U.S. or Canada was involved in from the American Civil War all the way up through Iraq and Afghanistan. And it is a, it's a thorny issue and one that I think about a lot. And I think that Phil Oaks here sort of articulates a lot of my own confusion. I like that this is, it's deeper than the other song you mentioned before, The Universal Soldier by Donovan, which yeah. I think is just kind of dismissive. I mean, it makes an interesting point, but I like that right. Oaks does not dismiss. He condemns, but he also tries to understand. What I was going to say is he doesn't understand all the way, but he's willing to concede that that part of that is him. Mm-hmm. Right. And he, and he, he's saying the whole time, I don't get it. Hmm. Can anybody here explain this to me? (laughs) (laughs) And I think there's some sincerity in that question. It's not a, he's not sitting at a card table with a sign that says, change my mind. (laughs) Yeah. And, and the universal soldier, uh, which is written by Buffy St. Marie, who is Canadian is it does make a very similar point, but I think you're right that it's a little bit more acidic about it. You know, like without him, who would, how would Hitler have condemned him at Dachau? Without him, Caesar would have stood alone. It's very, it lays more blame than is, is there anybody here does. But without him, how would Hitler have condemned him at Laval? Without him, Caesar would have stood alone. He's the one who gives his body as a weapon of the war. And without him, all this killing can't go on. He's the universal soldier and he really is to blame His orders come from far away no more They come from here and there and you and me And brothers, can't you see This is not the way we put the end to war it's not always that easy for people to say no to going off to war. In fact, sometimes they're compelled no. to do it. Um, right. So. It's it's one of those where it's like, it's technically a volunteer army, but if you really zoom in, in a lot of cases, not really. Yeah. Phil, what do you think of this one? I think it's another good song. Um I think some of, you know, Phil Oaks's confusion here is probably because of the nature of the ongoing war, because we had just gotten mm-hmm. out of the Korean War. Yeah. And this was and this was the height of the Vietnam War. 
And those are wars that, to a lot of Americans, the causes for them were just extremely abstract. Yeah. I think it's a reasonable yeah. question. Why would you voluntarily sign up there to go to Vietnam mm-hmm. and accomplish what? Which is, you know, an attitude I think, you know, people might have less if there was something like pressing. Like, I don't think anybody was worried about, like, Nam invading the U.S. Yeah. But yeah, no. it's another, you know... It's definitely a good song. And it wasn't like with Vietnam for a a pretty long time. It wasn't obvious how messed up the cause was. You know, there were a lot of people who in very good faith believed the domino theory and believed that we were there fighting the good fight. Mm-hmm. It's same with Iraq, actually. I mean, we all remember that, how complicated that lead up got. And it. it Warfare is complicated, y'all, yep. is pretty much what I'm trying to say here. And people have got really valid reasons for believing what they believe about any given conflict. And there's there are no easy answers. Yeah, that's that's a good summation. All right. Next track is Canons of Christianity. Oh, this one's nice and light, right? <laughs> That's the melody. Christian cannons have fired at my days With the warning beneath the holy blaze And bow to our authority Say the cannons of Christianity In the artist's history section, I didn't mention an important detail about Phil Oakes because I wanted to save it for here. Phil Oakes was Jewish, and while neither he nor his family were ever especially observant, this meant, among other things, that he felt no particular connection with Christianity. After an amusing introduction in which Oakes tells us that God slash Bob Dylan appeared to Oakes (laughs) to tell him that something must be done about Christianity after God has just watched the movie The Greatest Story Ever Told, (laughs) Oakes then delivers a quiet four-minute acoustic ballad quote-unquote anti-hymn that is, okay, I guess, (laughs) but even then I might be reaching. I don't think it's the subject matter per se that leaves me feeling unenthused. It's more that the mix of an extremely sedate melody and lyrics with absolutely no subtlety whatsoever ends up not really working for me. As a couple of points of comparison, My God by Jethro Tull from the 1971 album Aqualun is much longer than this and every bit is dreary but it's full of mood and tempo shifts and mock Gregorian chants and one of the most iconic flute solos in a discography full of iconic flute solos. Hymn 43 by Jethro Tull, also from Aqualun, is three minutes long. Every bit as blasphemous as Canons of Christianity and rocks stupidly hard in places. Save himself from the gory, gory, stinkers. We 
This song is an endlessly dreary slog of verses like, quote, Cathedral walls will glitter with their gold, and the sermons speak through silver robes. Building castles amidst the poverty, say the canons of Christianity, end quote. I like the quiet guitar arrangement. I just wish it had been used with something else. Amanda, what do you think of this one? I don't like it. <laughs> it's a it's a slog and a mildly annoying one at that. I'm not offended by it, but he clearly thinks he's being wildly transgressive and provoking. Yes. <laughs> and he just isn't. And I'm sure this hit harder in 1966 than it does now, but it mm-hmm. just hasn't really aged well. And I think... As opposed to the previous song, where the whole point of the song was, I don't really understand this phenomenon. This one, he doesn't understand the phenomenon, but he thinks he does. Here he's 100% sitting at the change my mind table. Yes, (laughs) absolutely. And it's, I don't know, this is the kind of thing that... As a practicing Christian, like I said, I'm not offended by this, but I do find it annoying when somebody who clearly doesn't know what they're talking about makes these very pointed criticisms that are extremely easy to counter, you know, (laughs) if they knew anything about the subject matter. So, you know, and lots of, as John pointed out, lots of other people have done similar things since this came out, and so Canons of Christianity just ends up sounding kind of whiny and irritating to my modern ears. Phil, what about to your modern ears? Sucks. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I can see that. So, yeah, it's uh, it's boring. It's dreary. The lyrics are what I think of when I think of somebody trying to be deep, and they're just way up their own ass. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I'm not offended by the lyrics. I just wish, you know, if I, I prefer the poetry of the Dead Kennedys and their anti-Christianity uh, yeah. song, uh, Religious Vomit, which contains the lyrics, and I quote, All religions make me want to throw up. All religions make me sick. All religions make me want to throw up. All religions suck. <laughs> <laughs> That's basically what Phil Oaks is saying here. Yeah. But uh, I get a chuckle out of the Dead Kennedys. Here, I just want the song to end. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you all. It, it's telling that in that compilation where I first listened to Phil Oaks uh, called There But For Fortune, it had 10 out of the songs from Phil Oaks mm. in concert, but not Canons of Christianity. Um, oh, the melody is all right, but again, with without any interesting instrumentation, there's just not a lot to it musically. Maybe, and, and Amanda made a good point here, I mean, I might be taking for granted that this might have been more more shocking back then, and, and maybe mm-hmm. Amer- because Americans sure have grown more cynical about religion over the years, I just take for granted that um, that people sing songs like this. Maybe they didn't back then. Christianity is just such a huge, obvious target. Yeah. I think Oaks does better when he's aiming small. He could have scaled this down to maybe a song about the Pope or something. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. If he'd zeroed in on something more specific. Yeah. It might have it might have worked out better. Let's go on to There But for Fortune. Show me a jail 
Show me a prison man whose face is growing pale And I'll show you a young man With many reasons why And there but for fortune may go you or I Phil Oaks introduces this song as one that Joan Baez wrote for him. But he's making a bit of a joke. Phil originally wrote this song, but a year before he recorded the version for this album, Baez recorded her own version, which peaked at number eight in the UK. At the same time, there's also a grain of truth in his remark. Prior to the Baez cover, Phil had actually recorded his own version of this, which came out on a 1964 label-wide release for Vanguard called New Folks Volume 2, and would later see release on a 2006 Phil Oaks compilation called The Early Years. Show me the whiskey that stains on the floor Show me a drunken man as he stumbles out the door And I'll show you a young man with many reasons why And there but for fortune may go you or I Your mileage may vary but I don't find this early version nearly as effective as what came later. Yeah. It's simply too fast, and it never has a chance to latch on to the heart and soul of the listener. Baez clearly heard a potential in the song that Oakes missed the first time around, and Oakes clearly liked what she had done with it, because the version on In Concert is essentially a cover of the Baez rendition of it. I absolutely adore this song. There's a spareness in Phil's lyrics that was not always typical of him, even if the spareness of the arrangement is typical. In his eagerness to make a political or philosophical point, he could sometimes overwrite a bit. But here, he doesn't waste a single word. He presents four vignettes, a prisoner, a hobo, a drunk, and a country bombed during war. And he reminds us as listeners that we can't judge ourselves better than them just because our current experiences aren't as dire, since so much of life turns on actions that we may not have full control over. The majesty of the song reminds me so much of the cover that the band did of Bob Dylan's I Shall Be Released at various points. Mm. But what it reminds me of most isn't music but rather one of my favorite passages from The Lord of the Rings. In The Two Towers, Samwise Gamgee sees a large-scale battle of men against men for the first time and sees an enemy soldier die right in front of him. And he has the following thoughts, 
which in the movie are given voice by Faramir. Quote, he wondered what the man's name was and where he came from, and if he was really evil of heart, or what lies or threats had led him on the lawn march from his home, and if he would not really rather have stayed there in peace, end quote. Yeah, I have nothing contrarian to say about this. Uh, this one gets me deep down. It's delicate and beautiful and, and flowing with empathy and humility. I did not know about that earlier version, but he's singing it just like he sings every other song uh, yes. at that point. Whereas this one, he just slows down and does it completely differently. And and this is much better. And I really love the last bit where he just kind of, the, the last or I at the very end of the song where he just ramps up the melody and intensity and ends on a beautiful note. And I'll show you a young land with so many reasons why And there but for fortune may go you or I or I wish there was more of this empathy and humility in the world. There's an entire political movement in America that seems to be founded on the notion of what happened to you is your fault mm -hmm. and thus your problem. It would never happen to me. And so I'm not going to help you. If you wanted to shorten that to fit on a bumper sticker that might go well on the back of a pickup truck, it would say something like, I've got mine, so f you. I won't name names here, but it's not the Green Party that I'm talking about. <laughs> um, I have a naive hope that if some of the adherents of this political movement listen to There But For Fortune, they'd realize that most of us are where we are because of dumb luck and that we're all responsible for each other's well-being. And that maybe they'd give up their pickup trucks and drive hybrid SUVs <laughs> with bumper stickers that instead say, I've got mine. And I really hope the government gives you yours with a smiley face emoji at the end. That would be a change for the better, maybe. Phil, what do you think of this one? When I was, you know, getting ready for this episode, I saw a lot of people who had said, like, you know, Phil Oaks is just one of the all-time great songwriters. And I have to admit, like, you know, just listening to this album, it's like, oh, I mean, he's a great lyricist, uh, but sometimes he gets, you know kind of overwordy. He's trying to cram a bunch of things in there. He's very good, but I don't see him as great as a songwriter. This is a great, great, great song. Yeah. Yep. You could make a case around him being a great songwriter based solely on this song. It was the only song he ever recorded. Like it's got a wonderfully, wonderfully pretty melody. Like the lyrics are spare and say nothing that they don't need to say. Again, the sentiment is a very good sentiment. I wish I could put that more poetically. Sentiment-wise, it's good. Thumbs up. Yeah, really great song. Amanda, how about you? You know, my my grip on this album is tenuous at best. And this is the... It, there are certain points where I just slip off entirely. And for some reason, I'm just not hearing what you guys hear. Oh, no. I believe oh. you. I, I don't dislike it at all. I'm not going like what the hell this is a piece of shit was you guys are nuts that's that's not what's happening at all this just slid in one ear and out the other and i am fully certain that this is a me problem i'm just gonna have to listen closer but i'm i really enjoy having heard how much you guys love it so now i know 
that I do, in fact, need to listen closer. Hmm. Well, maybe try listening to it out of the context of the album, because it comes right after Canons of Christianity, which is kind of deadening. Yeah, that's part of it. Let's move on to Cops of the World. Come get out of the way, boys. Quick, get out of the way. You'd better watch what you say, boys. Better watch what you say. We've rammed in your harbor and tied to your port. And our pistols are hungry and our tempers are short. So bring your daughters around to the fore. Cause we're the cops of the world, boys. We're the cops of the world. My, but this is a chipper flamethrower. <laughs> kind of the Phil Oaks equivalent of the Blarney Stone by Ween. <laughs> I touched on it before, but I must emphasize it in the strongest of terms. Phil Oaks despised the self-designated role of the United States as the guardians of democracy and liberty in the world. And with Cops of the World, he manages to convey this concentrated disgust and possibly the most boisterous, sing-songy anthem on the album. He takes on the American approach to foreign policy that led it to get tangled up in Vietnam. But he also goes all in on condemning individual soldiers for their acts of brutality. And he tops it all by flat out saying that their actions make them no better than cops. (laughs) Should it surprise you to learn that years after his death, It came out that the FBI had a file of over 500 pages on Phil Oaks. Wow. Anyway, I love this one. I admit that it's not great that the second verse presents the message of America is the world's rapist (laughs) in such a cheerful tone. But this fits in seamlessly with the rest of the song. And since I like the rest of it so much, I'm able to let this slide. Quote, like it or not. You will have to be free, end quote. (laughs) Phil, what do you think of Cops of the World? I like this one. It's basically got the same message as that other timeless American folk song, America, f*** yeah, by uh, Trey Parker and Matt Stone. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I mean, especially in this, in that era, where again, like I mentioned earlier, a lot of Americans just flat out were like, what are we even doing in Vietnam? What were we doing in Korea? Why is this us? Why are we... And again, there was a draft at the time, too. So people were getting sent over there who really had no choice. And he uh, really hammers on it and does it on a uh, with a very, very memorable melody. Probably the most memorable melody on the album, I would say. Again, like you said it very well, John. This is just a chipper flamethrower. And I appreciate the audacity of recording it. Amanda, how about you? I don't like it. (laughs) (laughs) I can see that. Um, it's a it's a very yep, I went there kind of a song. Yeah. And it's it's annoying. Oh <laughs> man. It's so annoying. And it's it's what like I think it's what 5 minutes long. This is one of the longer songs on the album yeah. and it feels it's got like, like nine verses. Yeah, it feels like it goes on for like an hour. <laughs> and it's and I don't even necessarily disagree um I don't really know where I was going with that, but it's it's an obnoxious song. <laughs> yeah, I'm more on team Amanda here. 
this is heavy handed, uh, even as Phil Oak's political songs go. American imperialism and militarism is an important, those are important issues to address. And, and they never seem to go away, like a lot of the issues addressed on this album. And that's depressing. The lyrics are pointed and, and they absolutely make the point that he wanted to make. But it's a cynical look at the military at, and at American influence around the world. As Amanda rightly pointed out uh, about war and about people becoming soldiers, uh, this is a complex topic and we're only getting one side of it here. And besides, I watched MASH and we weren't bad all the time. I don't think. Alan Alda wouldn't lie to me, right? Uh, the, <laughs> Never. The melody here is zippy enough, but there's zero subtlety and it's not one of my favorites. Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a problem I have like with Phil Oaks in general is that there's all, he is a phenomenally not subtle songwriter. <laughs> which uh, no. does result in a lot of his music being very dated and also very so on the nose. I mean, a few episodes ago, I talked about John Prine and his song, Your Flag to Cal Won't Get You Into Heaven Anymore, about, you know, mm-hmm. American jingoism and stuff. And it makes, you know, this kind of point with, you know, some sort of humor and slyness and like cleverness. Whereas here, there's something clever about this. It's very much Phil Oaks preaching to the converted and wanging you in the head over and over again <laughs> with this message. Yeah. Maybe it says something about me that I find this song fun regardless, but uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And he can be more subtle than this. He just left all that at the door. It's kind of interesting to me that this album has both is there anybody here and cops of the world? Yeah. It's like the two sides of the Phil Oaks subtlety coin. Right. Like that one is written with a fair amount of subtlety and sensitivity and cops of the world is a blunt instrument. Oh, I also though, Phil just reminded me of something else fun that I wanted to point out, which is that Phil recently covered an artist called John and now John is covering an artist called Phil. I like that very much. That's great. All right, let's go on to the next song, Santo Domingo. And the crabs are crazy. They scuttle back and forth. The sand is burning. And the fish take flight and scatter from the side. Their course is turning. As the seagulls rest on the cold cannon nest, the sea is churning. The Marines have landed on the shores of Santo Domingo. This one is kind of a drag. In 1965, the Dominican Republic fought a civil war, and the United States Marines intervened on behalf of one side. I will not cover the details here, but if you know anything about the general history of the United States, intervening in Latin American affairs from the 1960s to the 1980s, you can probably guess 70% of the relevant details without looking it up. (laughs) As with Bracero, I'm glad that Oakes chose to make his audience spend some time thinking about an aspect of world politics that he cared about, but that many of them would just as soon have ignored. Oakes had a genuine passion for many Latin American political movements that stood in opposition to official United States interests. And one of his greatest emotional pains in the 1970s came from the death of his friend, 
Victor Yara, a prominent Chilean musician who was murdered during the overthrow of the Allende government in 1973. And yet, while I admire Oakes's tenacity here, nine verses is a lot. Mm. And the song just isn't varied or interesting enough to support that much material. One detail that I do really like, though, comes from the decision to make the first verse and the final verse identical. Even though he likely did this because he couldn't think of any other way to close the song, I like to think that this conveys the idea that for all of the commotion described in the middle verses, daily life in the Dominican Republic isn't really going to fundamentally change as a result. And eventually the Marines are going to come back because that's just what they do. Hmm. This one gets away from me. It's it's very, very topical in a way that isn't as timeless as, as Oaks's best work. His imagery is striking. He he creates a sense of place. He plays the guitar with energy, but it's just kind of there to my ears. Phil, what do you think? It's too long. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Like it's got a very good melody, but again, for nine verses or whatever, like that that melody and like there's no like chorus or anything. You just get verse after verse after verse after verse of Phil Oaks with no no variety, no changes. And I I tire of it. Again, it's mm-hmm. if it was like four verses long and maybe had like an acoustic guitar solo break or something in it, like anything yeah. to break up the monotony of it, I would like it more because I think there's a lot of good ingredients here. But again, this is kind of, to me, the weakness of this album as a whole is just that there is no variety or anything that breaks things up ever. So mm-hmm. if you're not 100% on board with what's going on in a song, well, it's not changing and you're going to get a lot more of it. <laughs> Amanda, what about you? Yeah, no, <laughs> um, it's it's is very long and very boring. And he's adhering to a pretty strict folk style story song form, uh, which Bob Dylan also did a lot. But I'm going to say something nice about Bob Dylan, you guys. He was <laughs> usually better at it than this. Something like the first one that comes to mind is the Ballad of Hollis Brown, which yeah. is also very long, but is a lot more intriguing than this one is, even though it's also fairly monochromatic. And that was, of course, before Nazareth got their hands on it and <laughs> turned it into the first doom metal song. There's seven people dead on a South Dakota farm. One thing I want to point out about the album is is that, you know, we've been critical of some of the individual songs, but the album has just kind of an overall feel to it. And yes. and the yeah. between song patter is is very important to it. Oh, for sure. And beyond that, just knowing that it's not really a live album for the most part yeah. and then listening to where the producers throw in the the laugh track and the applause, that yeah. that's just yep. kind of trippy in itself and it creates its own experience. So it's the album is not just the songs. Well, Phil complained that the last song didn't have enough changes. Boy, uh, do uh, I have something for you. Let's go on to the next track, Changes. Nice. 
Oops, I seem to have made a mistake. I do that sometimes. Here's the right changes. a bit of a slow grower for me. But once I allowed myself to accept that it was okay for Phil Oaks in 1966 to write a great quiet acoustic ballad without even a whiff of protest elements, it became a favorite of mine. To this point, for lack of a better way to put it, Oaks tended exclusively to write songs about things, which one might expect from somebody who, by their own admission, got most of their ideas from Newsweek. On Changes, however, Oakes shows that he's willing to dabble in writing lyrics that create images that hint at a meaning, but never overtly define it. And he shows a clear talent for it. Quote, The world spinning madly, it drifts in the dark, swings through a hollow of haze, a race around the stars, a journey through the universe ablaze with changes. End quote or the final verse, before the initial verse reprise. Quote, Your tears will be trembling, now we're somewhere else. One last cup of wine we will pour, and I'll kiss you one more time, and leave you on the rolling river shores of changes. End quote. I don't know what Oaks is singing about. And yet, deep down, I feel like I know exactly what Oaks is singing about. And that's the mark of a great lyricist beyond a mere quote-unquote scening journalist. Oakes took a risk in writing this kind of song for a notoriously narrow-minded fan base. But I think he came through with a triumph. Amanda, what do you think of Changes? It's really pretty. <laughs> I like it. Um, but what occurred to me is that if you added a high harmony, this could almost be a Simon and Garfunkel song. Yes. I had the exact yeah. same thought. Yeah, it's it's the guitar is very it's not as intricate as Paul Simon's guitar parts tended to be. But, you know, it kind of sounds like something like April Comes She Will or Bleecker Street. Fox rolling in off the East River Bank Like a shroud It covers Bleecker Street Fills the alley the shepherd from the sheep or something along those lines from their first couple of albums and because I am crazy about Simon and Garfunkel that that really helps a lot for this one I think this is lovely it's also just you have to be paying attention or it's going to pass you by, especially at this point in the album coming after a couple of songs that I don't really like. But it's 
once you realize it's there, it's really worth paying attention to. Phil, what do you think of it? So this is actually the one song on this album I had heard before. Hmm. Oh. And that's because this song was covered by Neil Young on his borderline unlistenable 2014 album, A Letter Home. (laughs) (laughs) Oh. Which, if you don't know, he basically recorded in a turn-of-the-century make-your-own-album booth. Oh, Oh, my gosh. Even on that album, though, which intentionally sounds like trash, the prettiness of this song comes through. And, you know, Neil hmm. Young sings it well. Because, I mean, if you haven't heard it, you can you can imagine this in Neil Young's voice. I heard it come on here and it's like, oh, that's what this is from. Because I didn't actually know. And, yeah, it's a very pretty song. Very different from everything else Phil Oaks did. Which I find that I kind of like Phil Oaks more when he gets a little bit away from his, like, standard uh, yeah. haranguing style. Like, because, again, like... <laughs> There But For Fortune and Changes are both just fantastic songs that do not sound like, you know, the rest of the material on this album. This is one of the best songs ever. I I, I wish I had the words to do it justice. Uh, It's not a protest song. It's unlike most of Phil Oaks' songs. It's out of time. It's out of genre. It's just stunning and gorgeous and heartbreaking. Uh, And it always gives me chills. I wish I had more words for it. I'm not sure I can do more here than just, wow. We're going to move on to Love Me, I'm a Liberal. So here then is a lesson in safe logic. I cried when they shot Medgar Evers. Tears ran down my spine. And I cried when they shot Mr. Kennedy. Though I'd lost a father of mine But Malcolm X got what was coming He got what he asked for this time So love me, love me, love me I'm a liberal Get it? In his spoken introduction to Love Me, I'm a Liberal, Phil Oaks defines liberals as follows, quote, an outspoken group on many subjects, 10 degrees to the left of center in good times, 10 degrees to the right of center if it affects them personally, end quote. Phil Oaks knew that his audience contained a smattering of true believers like himself, but he also knew very well that his audience primarily contained the 1960s equivalent of the couple from Get Out who would have voted for Obama a third time if they could. (laughs) The titular liberal is somebody who, quote, loves Puerto Ricans and Negroes as long as they don't move next door, Mm -hmm. end quote. It's somebody who shakes their heads at backward states like Mississippi, probably fantasizing about a national divorce. And maybe doesn't mind the idea of integrated schools as long as the education of their own kids isn't affected. The best part of the song, for my money, comes near the end. When he lures people in his audience into outing themselves as his targets. Before immediately cutting them down for their lack of interest in committing themselves tangibly to a cause greater than themselves. I vote for the Democratic Party. They want the UN to be strong. I attend all the Pete Seeger concerts. He sure gets me singing those songs. 
And I'll send all the money you ask for But don't ask me to come on along So love me, love me, love me I'm a liberal This is one of my favorite songs of all time. My personal politics have gone through quite a journey in my adult life. But while 20-year-old John would find much of what 42-year-old John believes bewildering, these two iterations, both firmly grounded in the claim of the Epistle of James that faith without works is dead, would find common ground in the disgust Oakes expresses for the vacuous, counterproductive self-congratulation that plagues so much of self-professed liberalism to this day. Hell, I live in Oak Park, Illinois, a community like so many others in the area that wants to make sure you and everybody else knows all of the great progressive things it did 50 years ago. (laughs) But if there are measures on the table today that could help more people in the area afford to live there, well... We have to think of the property values. <laughs> this song will never, ever lose relevance in the United States especially. And the timeless melody, borrowed in parts from the traditional Irish-American number, Old Rosin the Bow. I've traveled all over this world, and now to another I go. And I know that good quarters are waiting to welcome all rosin the bow. Makes it so that adding new verses to it is actually surprisingly easy. A couple of years ago, in a period of annoyance over various political kerfuffles that got a lot of people in a tizzy, but that just got dumber the more I thought about them, I jotted down the following, quote, I put up a sign full of colors so people will know that I'm good. (laughs) It's got all the right catchphrases to make people think what they should. (laughs) But I don't think I'll give any money or time. If I could, then I would. So love me, love me, love me. I'm a liberal. End quote. (laughs) Finally, I am absolutely obliged to mention that this song has been covered a lot. But the cover version that has had the most staying power is one from 1994 by Jello Biafra and Mojo Nixon. They updated some of the references, in some cases in very funny ways, but they had to change very little of the structure, as you can hear. when I saw JFK just has me <laughs> rolling every single time. It's really good. <laughs> I think Jello Biafra and uh, Phil Oaks might have been kindred spirits. <laughs> yeah. Phil, what do you make of this? I mean, this one's great. I mean, it's absolutely hilarious. And despite the extremely dated references in it, 
it will never, ever, ever, ever age a day because this attitude is never going anywhere. Like, and it's incredibly frustrating, but it is what it is. It's just funny just how much, you know, Phil Oaks has these people nailed. Yep. Because, I mean, I guess the related concept is the NIMBY, not in my backyard, which uh, Mm -hmm. we see quite a bit of around where I live, where there's, you know, all these people with, you know, bumper stickers, you know, about how we need to do all these amazing social things. And they tried to build like some, you know, Section 8 housing. They're like, oh, no, that'll add traffic. (laughs) You don't want there to be traffic, right? But then they built, you know, some like million dollar townhouses, Mysteriously, nobody complained that those were going to uh, increase traffic. Hmm. Yep. Gee, I wonder what the difference was. Huh. Any song that like slams that kind of like hypocritical, obnoxious, just infuriating way of being just gets an instant thumbs up from me. Yeah, it's true. We're so lame. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of got a lot on this one. I'm a liberal, even after age 40, despite Winston Churchill's warning. I'm less starry-eyed than I was when I was 20 about the world and about allegedly liberal politicians, but I still believe in a robust social safety net for the unlucky, which should be paid for by the really lucky. I believe in regulations that protect the worker and the consumer, even if the CEO thinks they're bad for business. I think the police should respect everyone's rights and should face consequences when they don't. I believe we should continue to have an environment. I don't think minorities should (laughs) stop agitating for fairer treatment because Martin Luther King solved racism back in 1964. I lived in New York City for a decade. I drive a hybrid, and I think Ben Shapiro is an ass. I could go on about this. But... Everything Phil Oaks sings about in this song is accurate. We can be gross hypocrites. We preach about what should happen in the inner city, but we keep our distance from the inner city. We say the right things, but we don't always do much more than than send a check. For all our ideals, we are just as subject to being suspicious and paranoid and racist as every other human being is, even though we pretend otherwise. When it comes to tolerating points of view that we don't agree with, we can be downright illiberal about it. And as for turning people in, as he does in the last verse, over the years, I've secretly reported three of my Discord and Rhyme co-hosts to Homeland Security for suspicious behavior, and I don't have any regrets about it. What are those flashing lights outside? Oh, no. Because you know all those liberal beliefs I mentioned a minute ago? I really do believe them, but I can't say I've done much to make them a reality in America outside of donating to charity and voting now and then. So I can't really say why a poor person would like me more than they like the guy who lectures them about how they need to work harder because we just say different things about them. But this is about a song. More than anything, this is a hilarious song. It makes a sharp point, but with great punchlines, especially that last one about turning you in. He builds up to that. Yeah. Every time I listen to this, it's it's funny and it's fresh. My one complaint is that tears ran down my spine is just a real stretch. (laughs) I don't care how you contort yourself. Tears just don't do that. Amanda, what about you? 
It's so good. <laughs> oh man, Phil Oaks is very was just such a clever and sharp-witted person. Yeah. You know, and he sang this whole song about virtue signaling before there was even yeah. a term for that. Yes. It's great. He just he observed this phenomenon and then skewered it right in the heart. And I mentioned before, you know, movies that could have been based on Phil Oak songs. I'd mentioned A Few Good Men. The The movie that covers this topic was Guess Who's Coming to Dinner mm, from 1967, yeah. which took a couple of hours to say what Phil Oak <laughs> says here in a couple of minutes. You know, that one has Catherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy is, you know, basically liberal elites who are completely in favor of civil rights until civil rights shows up at their house <laughs> in the form of Sidney Poitier. And it's it's a good movie. Uh, Love Me, I'm a Liberal is just so wonderfully concise and humorous. And that's always, it's always a really effective way to make a point is by making it funny and engaging. And he picked a good melody to set it to as well. And I'm glad you pointed this out, John, because I know Rosin the Bow, but I didn't make the connection until I read it in your notes. And I went, oh, yes, that is that melody. And it's the, it's a real catchy melody and it fits his words really well. This is a great song. I'm rambling a lot, but it's a great song. It's good rambling. <laughs> it's basically what the capital steps would sound like if they were even slightly funny. We're going to move on to the last song on the album, When I'm Gone. And uh, John has a few words before we play the clip. I do. Um, when I'm Gone touches on the subject of suicide. And for reasons that will soon become clear, it is impossible for a discussion of the song to bypass this topic. If you find a subject upsetting, please skip ahead about 10, maybe a few more minutes. in this world where I'll belong when I'm gone and I won't know the right from the wrong when I'm gone and you won't find me singing on this song when I'm gone so I guess I'll have to do it while I'm here and I won't feel the flowing of the time when I'm gone all the pleasures of love will not be mine when I'm gone My pen won't pour a lyric line when I'm gone So I guess I'll have to do it while I'm here On April 9th, 1976, Phil Oakes died by suicide at the age of 35. He died in the home of his sister Sonia with whom he had recently started living after an especially difficult stretch, the details of which I will not fully cover here. The roughly 10 years between the release of In Concert and Phil's death had some high points, but Phil's life and career did not go at all the way he might have expected. In 1967, 
he moved from New York to Los Angeles, leaving the Electra label for A&M Records, with whom he released four studio albums. Oakes believed that his 1967 release, Pleasures of the Harbor, would make him a superstar. And see, bids farewell. She waves and swells and sends them on their way. Time has been her pay, and time will have to tell. Oh, soon you're sailing. After it sold poorly relative to his expectations and received largely negative reviews, he never really recovered. Even if the album became his best-selling work and gained a cult following over time. Over the next couple of years, he largely adopted a dual artistic identity. On the one hand, a surprisingly adventurous boundary pusher moving his folk music in the direction of art rock on tape from California, even as Bob Dylan was retreating into the safety of country music. And on the other hand, a mainstay of an increasingly impatient protest movement, somebody who still believed he could end the Vietnam War through songs, like his 1968 song, The War Is Over. Silent soldiers on a Silver screen Framed in fantasies and drugged and dreams Unpaid actors of the mystery The mad director knows that freedom will not make you free And what's this got to do with me? and bring about positive social change through his efforts. Instead, he and others in the protest movement got a war that just wouldn't end, and in the elections of 1968, they got Richard Nixon. Phil Oakes did not take this well, and it didn't help when his childhood hero, John Wayne, starred in the overtly pro-military 1968 film The Green Berets. The 1969 album, Rehearsals for Retirement, is where the somewhat suicidal subtext of Oakes' lyrics became impossible to ignore. My life is now a myth to me Like the drifter with his laughter in the dark I think it's very good. It sold exceptionally badly and fell out of print quickly. Oakes' next studio album, the ironically titled Greatest Hits of 1970, was also his last studio album. And on this album and the ensuing tour, 
he took a major gamble that didn't really pay off. He decided that the protest music scene had lost its ability to reach people. So in his own words, he decided that he needed to be, quote, part Elvis Presley and part Che Guevara, end quote. He began performing in a gold lame suit, interspersing his own material with Elvis Presley and Buddy Holly medleys. And while he had some crowds that warmed up to him, most of them didn't understand what he was doing. From there, he entered a period of writer's block that he never escaped from, not helped by an ever-increasing usage of drugs and alcohol. In the next few years, he spent a good deal of time traveling the world, looking for inspiration. But in 1973, during one of his travels, he was strangled during a robbery in Tanzania. And the damage to his vocal cords added to his ever-increasing despair and paranoia. He lived to see the end of the Vietnam War and the end of the Nixon presidency. But if anything, these victories took away much of what he saw as his own purpose. When I'm Gone is the first of many Oak songs to have clear suicidal undertones. But the feel of the song is very different from what would come later. The phrase that ends each verse, quote, I guess I'll have to do it while I'm here, end quote, is hardly a ringing endorsement from him towards the idea of staying alive. But it's also an acknowledgement that there's a lot of doing that the world needs done. And if that couldn't bring him happiness, then maybe it could at least bring him purpose. When I started preparation for this episode, I began from the baseline assumption that Love Me, I'm a Liberal is my favorite song on the album. But I've since come to realize that When I'm Gone takes the crown for me. And I've also realized why this had to be the case, even if I didn't initially know it. When I'm Gone, better than any song I've ever heard, captures the fundamental underlying message of the book that Christians know in their Old Testament as Ecclesiastes, and that those who study the Hebrew Bible know as Kohelet. My long-standing favorite chapter in the Old Testament is Ecclesiastes 11, the quiet and subdued answer to all of the difficult philosophical questions posed before it. And when I hear Oakes's clear singing of his deeply contemplative sentiments over an aching melody, my mind inevitably binds this song with that chapter, which I will share here, as rendered by the great Robert Alter. Quote, Send out your bread upon the waters, for in the long course of time you will find it. Give a share to seven and even to eight, for you know not what evil will be on earth. If the clouds fill, they will empty out rain on the earth. And if a tree falls in the south or the north, the place where the tree falls, there it will be. He who watches the wind will not plant, and who gazes on clouds will not harvest. As you know not the path of the life breath into the limbs within the full womb, so you know not the deeds of God, who does everything. In the morning plant your seed, and at evening let your hand not rest. For you know not which will be fit, this one or that, or whether both be equally good. And light is sweet, and it is good for the eyes to see the sun. 
Should man live many years, let him rejoice in all of them, and let him recall the days of darkness, for they will be many. Whatever comes is mere breath. Rejoice, young man, in your youth, and let your heart be merry in the days of your prime, and go about in the ways of your heart and what your eyes see. But know that for all these, God will bring you to judgment and remove worry from your heart and take evil away from your flesh for youth and the time of vigor are mere breath, end quote. Phil, what do you think of when I'm gone? I think it's pretty. (laughs) 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 Okay, but seriously, yeah, it's a great song. Again, like many of the best songs on here, it falls into that... uh, there but for fortune and changes, you know, zone where Phil Oaks kind of stops preaching and is, you know, writes a very personal little contemplative song. Very simple, but very effective. I really like it. Amanda, what about you? Oh, this is lovely. And what a gut punch. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, I mean, it's it's impossible to hear this. And like, if you know what happened to Phil Oaks, it's impossible to not think about that when you hear these lyrics. Right. And even if you don't know that, though, the way he sings, I guess I'll have to do it while I'm here. He sounds so weary. Yes. And resigned. He's not necessarily happy about having to no. still be around and do that work, even though he feels that that is his purpose that he needs to fulfill. And that's... And also the his vocal on this is the best one on the album. He puts that just tiny little bit of vibrato into, you know, like the longer vowels. And it sounds, it, it really adds a lot of emotional weight yeah. to the song. Have I mentioned how great a singer Phil Oaks is? That's something that I think. He was so good. He was such a good yes. singer. And this is a really Extremely. good example of him being a great singer. Yes, I agree. I, I like his voice so much. And this is another song uh, that reminds me quite a bit of Paul Simon. Um, not so much in the subject matter, but that guitar part is a, another very Paul Simony guitar, although not as technically proficient as Simon's guitar would have been. And I, I just, I like that very much. It's, it's a style that really appeals to me. This is a beautiful song. It's achingly sad, and it just, it, it evokes a lot of emotion. I mean, in in a much different way from all of the other emotion-evoking songs on this album. I mean, you 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 feel a lot of things while you're listening to Phil Oaks in concert, and this is I love that it goes out on such a personal one. Yeah, th- this is just one of the most devastating songs ever written and performed. Um, and John, as I think you recently pointed out on Twitter, like six people know about this song. Yep. Yeah. It, which which is unfortunate, and I hope we can point more people towards it. It's a statement of purpose, and it's a meditation on mortality. The melody is gorgeous and delicate. And Amanda, I like how you pointed out how how great his singing in, is here. It's it's as gentle and sensitive as as a rabble rouser can be. Mm-hmm. And sadly, he doesn't sound like he's talking about dying decades in the future as an old man. No. He sings like he's already got a few toes across the threshold already. It's telling yeah. to me that the song is called When I'm Gone. It's not called While I'm Here, even though that's kind of the chorus. Mm. Yep. Uh, the way he sings it here already sounds like it's in the rearview mirror. 
so that is the album. Uh, John, do you have uh, just overall thoughts about Phil Oaks in concert? Perhaps more than any other prominent member of the 1960s protest folk scene, Phil Oaks really believed in what he was peddling. He didn't ask for much. All he wanted was to change the world for the better Hmm. and also to become a musical superstar. (laughs) No big deal. (laughs) Obviously, this did not happen. Even if he had been as great of a singer and as great of a songwriter as he considered himself, and I think few people could have been, somebody with his level of uncompromising intensity underpinning everything he did was never going to please a wide enough audience to become more than a cult figure. In concert, just like the man who created it, has flaws. But as often as not, its flaws are forged from the same fire that forged its greatest strengths. And if the best it can do is endure as a great album with a small cult following, then I am happy to be part of that cult. And I hope that this episode will bring in some new members. This is a heavy album. It's dour. And as Phil rightly pointed out, it is musically spare. It's just a guy and an acoustic guitar. I don't come back to it or to Phil Oaks as often as I wish I did. Uh, But the album and the artist still mean so much to me. They bring me back to a time when I believed you could change the world just by singing about this stuff or by shouting about it. And maybe that was naive, but I liked believing that. And I have such deep admiration for someone who made it his life's mission to sing his message to as many people as he could. And and that he could sing that message on key and package it with clever wordplay and occasional humor and catchy melodies is just icing on the cake. I'm grateful that someone like Phil Oaks existed and made the music that he did. Amanda, do you have thoughts on the album? I do, as a matter of fact. First of all, I feel like I should explain um, what I've alluded to a couple of times in the episode, which is that I've got some beef with Bob Dylan. (laughs) And (laughs) it's it's he he doesn't care. I really need to let this go. But (laughs) one of the reasons why I personally have never really been able to get into him is because a lot of the times he just wasn't sincere. You know, Joni Mitchell famously called him a phony, and I I think she had a point. I kind of feel like he was like, okay, this is what this is the way the wind is blowing, so that's the direction I'm gonna go. I don't really get the impression that he was a true believer the way Phil Oaks was, and that sincerity, that intense belief in what he was singing, is what makes this Phil Oaks album so compelling. He is incredibly intense and you get swept up right along with him while thinking about all these very provocative questions he's asking. So the upshot of that is that this is truly a magnificent album, but it is a lot, (laughs) you know, as we've been saying this whole time, this is a lot to take in, a lot to digest. And I don't feel like I've been as articulate as I could be about it, just because it is so much, I have not fully absorbed this yet. And I'm not sure if I ever really will because I, Phil Oaks's intensity of emotion about the things that he believed 
that he truly believed. I mean, as far as I can tell, with all his heart and soul, he's he's telling you how he truly feels. That's a lot. It, it that's difficult to face. That's it's hard to look at that directly because it's 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 very vulnerable. It's very. I don't know. I feel like I'm flying too close to the sun here <laughs> <laughs> because Phil Oaks's sun is shining very brightly. And in a lot of ways, Phil Oaks expresses himself better than Dylan did. And you just, you need to set aside some time and emotion to digest it. Wow. I talked for a <laughs> long time. I hope that made any sense at all. <laughs> Phil, do you have final thoughts on the album? Yes, I do. So I guess to touch on what Amanda said a little bit, I would agree that Bob Dylan is capable of being a phony. Honestly, I think that's kind of why in the long run his music held up better than Phil Oakes's did. Mm, Because Phil Oakes's like aching sincerity, you have to pay attention to it. And it's his strongest, it's his strongest point, but it's also his biggest weakness. That's a really good point. Because it can lead him to write beautiful pieces of music and it can lead him to writing these like really direct preachy things Mm -hmm. canons of christianity for example whereas dylan because he didn't have as much of a center as phil oaks in terms of his beliefs could be a lot more flexible and ended up writing music that appealed to a lot more people Mm -hmm. that said there is something to be said for what Phil Oaks is doing here. And at his best on this album, he is absolutely stunning. This is an album that I think is very, very much worth hearing, especially in, you know, the modern age. It's the kind of thing where in previous times I might be, you know, a little hesitant to say, you should go out and drop 15 bucks on this. These days, the only thing it'll cost you is time. So there's really no reason not to check it out and see if it does anything for you. Yeah. And I I feel like I should clarify just a little bit that <laughs> I know I'm trying to head off the barrage of emails I'm probably going to get because you guys remember in the I know. yeah I'm already composing it <laughs> yeah I thought you might be because I mean you guys might remember in the traveling Wilburys episode when I said that Dylan was humorless I mean that really pissed some people off um, so I take it back Bob Dylan is the funniest man who's ever lived so. <laughs> It's I that's I am not trying to say that all artists should be bearing their soul at all times, that that's the only valid way to express yourself. That's not what I mean at all. And just don't don't email me about Bob Dylan. Okay, you guys, that's all I'm trying to do. Oh, gosh. Oh, I have dug myself such a big hole here. Dig up, stupid. Maybe we'll do a bonus episode where I explain my complicated feelings about Bob Dylan. Be great. Because I need to stop talking at some point. <laughs> so. John, if, if people rightly take you up on your mm. recommendation to get into Phil Oaks, what direction should they go in? I have two main recommendations. One of them an album and one of them not. My first recommendation is indeed Pleasures of the Harbor. I still think it's a terrible place to start, so you should get or hear in concert first. But there's a lot of interesting material on there, both musically and lyrically. The second single from the album, called Outside of a Small Circle of Friends, was inspired by the New York City stabbing death of Kitty Genovese in 1964. And while it didn't chart in any significant way, 
I find it unbelievably charming in a goofy sort of way. My second very strong recommendation is a 2010 documentary eventually released as part of the PBS American Master series called Phil Oaks, There But For Fortune. This is a 100-minute documentary about a man whose life story absolutely requires 100 minutes to tell it in an adequate way. And I found this a very compelling watch and absolutely indispensable in helping me prepare for this episode. As of recording, it is available on legal streaming services, though not through the biggest names. And you can also find a DVD of the documentary for about $20. And in the show notes, uh, we will include a link uh, to somewhere where you can watch this legally. I'm kind of going to go off into left field here a bit because I don't really know the folk scene or whatever very well. So... I'm going to make a recommendation for people who enjoy Phil Oaks tracks like Love Me, I'm a Liberal. This may not uh, be a bit of a surprise considering we clipped something from him, but I would very much recommend checking out the works of Jello Biafra and the Dead Kennedys. (laughs) Because, I mean, Jello Biafra's lyrics in the Dead Kennedys, he never really had the kind of aching sincerity that uh, Phil Oaks had. He was much more of a sarcastic, sneering guy, but he had Phil Oaks's basic politics and shared them with 100% of the intensity. Also, he's a guy who lyrically just kind of throws firebomb after firebomb after firebomb. If you appreciate the kinds of lyrics that uh, Phil Oaks has on, you know, again, songs like Love Me, I'm a Liberal, I would suggest picking up the debut album by the Dead Kennedys, Fresh Fruit for Rotting Vegetables which features many, many songs that I think you would enjoy greatly. If in progress is ours once more Now that we have a neutron bomb It's nice and quick and clean and get things done Away with the sesame But no less valued a property
as I've said, uh, I don't know a ton of Phil Oaks music outside of this album. I plan to dive into his discography just as soon as I find my youthful idealism, which was last spotted in my dorm room in 2002. Uh, if you are in Tolbert Hall in Gainesville, Florida, and find my youthful idealism in a storage room or something, definitely contact me, though I will probably tag your email as spam because I don't trust anything that's unfamiliar. <laughs> so I don't have a full album to recommend, but I'm going to talk about my favorite Phil Oaks song that isn't on this album. It's called Draft Dodger Rag. Yeah. John brought it up before. Yeah. It's from his second album, I Ain't Marching Anymore. It's a catchy, sprightly little song sung from the perspective of a draft dodger. The protagonist is petrified of going to Vietnam, and he rattles off the reasons why it is just not possible. Oh, I'm just a typical American boy from a typical American town. I believe in God and Senator Dodd and I keep an old Castro down. And when it came my time to serve, I knew better dead than red. But when I got to my old draft board, buddy, this is what I said. Sarge, I'm only 18, I got a ruptured spleen, and I always carry a purse. I've got eyes like a bat, and my feet are flat, and my asthma's getting worse. Yes, think of my career, my sweetheart dear, my poor old invalid aunt. Besides, I ain't no fool, I'm a-going to school, and I'm a-working in a defense plant. The lyrics are typically concise with each word hitting home and they make a biting point. And in a way that wasn't always characteristic of Oaks, they're really, really funny. Now, Phil Oaks had a great sense of humor. The between song patter on this album proves it over and over again, but it didn't often show up in his songs. In concert, he would tell a hilarious joke and then he would start singing a song called Blood on the Rice Paddy or <laughs> For Shame, Bull Connor, For Shame. Uh, but on Draft Dodger Rag, the lyrics themselves are goddamned hilarious. It's a great song. All right. That was Phil Oaks in concert. Next episode, I will be talking about After the Gold Rush by Neil Young. Boo. <laughs> I'm just here to sh- on everybody's favorites today. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Roll credits. You know, I'm the whitest person that ever did the funky chicken. Thank you for listening to Discord and Rhyme. You can buy Phil Oaks in concert and other albums by Phil Oaks at your local record store or at the usual places such as Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, and Amazon. Visit our website, discordpod.com, for show notes and a Spotify playlist featuring this album and every song we clipped in this episode. You can follow Discord and Rhyme at DiscordPod on Twitter for news and updates. Visit John's music review archive at johnmcfarrenmusicreviews.org. Fair warning, he rates albums in hexadecimal, and Phil Oaks in concert rates a sphere. Sure. Editing is by Amanda Rogers, and special thanks to Mike DeFabio for production, our theme song, and original music. See you next album, and keep as cool as you can. Bye.